Yo, yo, what up everyone? This is your life coach, Jacob Sokol, and welcome to WTF Should I Do With My Life. You're about to access a roadmap specifically designed for people in our generation, like you and me, who are looking to figure out how to create a life filled with happiness, success, and a deep sense of purpose, while simultaneously dealing with the challenges of today. This interview is with neuropsychologist Rick Hansen, who's the author of Buddha's Brain, the practical neuroscience of happiness, love, and wisdom. So, Rick is a scientific rock star. I mean, really, who else breaks down the latest neuroscientific findings on happiness, love, and wisdom into practical lingo that you and I can get with? Couple that lingo with simple actions we can rock to take advantage of these findings and poof, you'll have our interview. If that's not inspiring enough, check out this quote from Rick. Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and other great teachers were born with brains built essentially like anyone else's. Then they used their minds to change their brains in ways that changed history. In this interview, we're going to explore what to do when you have a knowing of what's true but you can't put it into words. We'll also talk about the three things you need to know about finding your ideal career. We'll touch on a straight up practical manual for how to use your brain's operating system and tools you can use to take advantage of using your mind in the most effective way. We'll talk about ways to deal with stress, cultivate positive experiences, and get control of your mind. Hey, Rick, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Jacob. Great to be here. And greetings to everyone listening. Right on. Well, I'm super excited to engage with you and talk about some of the wisdom that you share and particularly excited to get it into the lives of young adults who are facing unique set of challenges these days. And I think it would be a really cool way to start the convo if we could just give listeners a little bit more information about kind of who you are and um, your story. And I think a cool way to do that would be if you could share maybe some of the challenges that you faced as a young adult and, uh, and ultimately how that led you to be where you are today. Okay, great. So let's put it in time. I was born in 1952, so that meant that when uh, the 60s hit, I was uh, moving into young adulthood. So I went to UCLA 1969. I was 16 years old. I skipped a grade and had a really late birthday. So I was a young whippersnapper, a very sort of shy, dorky, nerdy, smart kid with glasses, skinny, you know, uh, and uh, so then I hit UCLA, and it was like, oh my God, I felt like I'd, you know, I'd grown up in a really nice, but pretty restrictive, sort of lower middle class uh, family in the suburbs of LA, and I hit UCLA, I was like a kid walking into the freaking candy store on drugs, you know, so that was <laughs> 1969 through 74, the human potential movement was starting to explode, you know, Zen had come to America just uh, you know, a decade or so before, we were riding the wave, you know, the beats that sort of handed off the baton, uh, it was happening, and also right in the middle of that, politically, it was huge, you know, My Lai Massacre, uh, Kent State, 1970, Nixon was in charge, Reagan was the governor of California, uh, when our campus exploded in 1970, uh, in the spring of 1970, after the Kent State shootings, uh, you know, Reagan shut down the whole University of California, and it was a big deal. So a lot of stuff going on. Uh, we did cool stuff. You know, you'd see the undercover cops walking on campus with these uh, looking like totally unusual people in plaid shorts and T-shirts, but, you know, crew cuts and huge pockets full of, you know, handcuffs and mace and what. And, you know, you know it was 
There was a time we flew kites off the top of the dorm buildings to make the helicopters go away. Um, you know, <laughs> it, it was it was a trip. So in the middle of all that, uh, I myself um, had always been. I think like a lot of people, when you're real young, you have a knowing of what's true, including what's not going right in the world that's true, but you can't really put it in words, but you know it. You know it in your heart. You could be three years old and you just know something's not right in your family or how the kids are or what the grown-ups trip is. And, and so I always had this very deep sense of that and a longing for happiness, real true happiness, and a desire to you know, help the world be what it could be, you know, which I knew in my bones it could be. And it always struck me that one of the greatest acts of courage is to stand up for your, is to hold on to your vision, even if you only keep it quiet inside your own heart, but to hold on to your vision of of what's actually realistically possible. So uh, that kind of set me on my journey. I, I got very interested in the human potential movement at UCLA, the early wave of humanistic psychology, um, kind of, um, I guess I think of positive psychology now as sort of like the third wave of this. You know, the first wave was kicked off by people like Jung, um, their sense of sort of in the West, you know, the visionary possible. Then came in the 50s, Carl Rogers, Maslow, people like that. And then then in the aughts, as it were, the 90s came people like Martin Seligman, Barbara Fredrickson, and so on. Anyway, so here I am, early 70s, like, wow, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, really happening. But besides having a great time, you know, uh, I just wanted to develop myself because I looked out at the world and I thought, I think a lot like people are looking out at the world today and realizing that, you know, as best we can to, you know, make the world out there a better place, it's kind of a slow process, right? <laughs> you know, and uh, meanwhile, we got a deal. And what we can train and develop and cultivate and grow and nurture and protect inside ourselves is what's going to help us navigate the world, particularly a world in which the pace of change, as a lot of people pointed out, is really accelerating. So if unpredictability, as it were, is growing, uh, what the best thing you can do is cultivate your own talents and skills and uh, capabilities of all kinds, whether it's, you know, driving a forklift or knowing how to calm your mind when you're rattled by something. So I was doing that. And then toward the end of that period, uh, 1974, I had uh, my final quarter at UCLA. I had 12 units to burn, and I didn't know what to do with them. So I did 12 units of independent study on Eastern philosophy and religion. I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I'd been raised totally a straight, you know, sort of like casual Methodist sort of guy. And wham, I just felt like the light was turned on. Someone had flipped a switch, illuminating all the dark corners, like, okay, this sort of Eastern, more Buddhist analysis of the nature of things and the nature of human experience and the, the ways in which it's constantly changing, everything's connected to everything else. And if you get with that program, it's cool. But if you struggle or fight against it, you're going to suffer and create harm for yourself and other people. Like, that just hit me so profoundly true. So that started me on the process of kind of adding to the psychological tools, as it were, uh, in my box of inner skills, as well as I, I did a lot of organizing and businessy things. I've always had a background in business, and I've been, I've been a management consultant as well for a number of years before becoming a psychologist. So kind of adding to that toolbox, I really wanted to, uh, you know, explore the inner trainings, as it were, 
that are found in the contemplative traditions of the world, not just the Eastern ones, but as I learned later, you know, the Western ones as well, and Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and so forth. And so that, that kind of takes me through young adulthood. That gets me to my mid-20s. And um, I'd say the takeaway from that for me is kick it. <laughs> you know, take chances, do stuff. Uh, you know, use this time. It's a remarkable time. I mean, rarely is it going to be so easy to sleep on the floor and eat brown rice for a year, you know. Uh, you get a little older, and uh, as the Buddha put it a long time ago, life starts getting dustier. <laughs> you start accumulating uh, stuff you got to deal with. Uh, so, you know, really go for it. That's really important. And uh, if you if you like, I'll, I'll actually have, on reflection, I have a couple of thoughts here, because I've I've reflected a lot of my young adulthood and <clears throat> what went right, what went wrong, and kind of some bottom line takeaways. But maybe I'll pause for breath here, see if you want to jump in and offer something. And then if you like, I can speak to that part too. Yeah, I'd absolutely love it. I mean, that, that's precisely perfect. The the thing that was coming up for me that I was curious about was when you said that there's a, a knowing of what's true when you're in an environment and something may be off and you don't you don't necessarily know how to articulate it yet how how can we deal with that how are you able to deal with that yeah that's great well to put it uh i'll start top down um a fellow daniel levinson did a lot of work on adult development and he found that there were um you know three themes that ran through a person's life uh one is the importance of what he called the dream the dream that we had typically formed in adolescence or even younger in early childhood kind of a vision uh, from the heart in the soul like a like a, a sense of yeah this is right you know what I mean like you're we've all had the experience of walking into certain groups or situations or parties and we just go wow this feels real good you know <laughs> this is my tribe this is my this is my thing this is the this is the beat I want to move my life to on the other hand, we've all had experiences of walking into situations that might look good, and other people might even be telling us, hey, this is awesome for you. But really, uh, uh, you know, it's like, I don't know what, rubbing a cat's fur the wrong direction. It's just not right for us. And so that's not cool. You know, we don't go there. Okay. So it's, it's, the dream is this sense of the vision of the possible that just feels so true. That's number one point from Levinson. Uh, and his, he said a, a life course and adult development 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond, is really shaped by how people deal with that dream, whether they're true to it, whether they um, back away from it, whether they pursue it in foolish ways, whether they pursue it in, in you know, skillful, pragmatically productive ways, etc. That's a key element. Second element, the mentor. The idea that um, there could be one or more people along the way who really help you along your way it, and sometimes their interaction is quite minimal you know it could simply be a even a teacher's comment in high school handing back a paper you know looking you in the eyes and there's that five seconds of contact when the teacher says um, you're a good writer and I hope you do something with this you know and that's it and suddenly you go whoa a door opens a sense of possibility or it could be someone you have a long relationship with. It could even be um, a partner, a lover, a friend who functions in some ways as a mentor. So how do mentors work for you? And then last point was this rhythm he called of organization, disorganization, organization, disorganization. And he described the 20s as a period generally of what he called tentative commitments, where we try stuff on. You know, 
not to trivialize it, but starter marriages or starter careers or starter jobs. And then you do it, you try it, you know, ready, fire, aim, right? You, you fire and then you course correct on the basis of that. So those are the three things you pointed out. So to bring it back to me, it's about the dream, you know. I think that uh, I work with kids, uh, l little kids as well as, um, you know, teenagers uh, and so forth, as well as, you know, adults and all that. And kids know a ton they may not be able to put it into words yet, but their right hemisphere, as it were, the, for most of the population, the site of uh, kind of um, gestalt processing, holistic knowing, therefore the site of visual-spatial reasoning. Anyway, that part of the brain, as well as the belly and the bones, just knows what's true. And standing up for that is really important. And I think what happens a lot in uh, childhood is people are faced with a fateful choice, you know, are they screwed up or am I screwed up? And a lot of people mm. uh, make the wrong call and they presume that um, they're screwed up, but actually, you know, that they, they themselves are screwed up. But actually the truth is the folks out there are screwed up, you know what I mean? Or the system <laughs> is screwed up that makes people screwed up. It's not you in, in your heart of hearts that's messed up. It's that world outside. So, you know, it, we, we make that call often to kind of keep the peace or to get you know, to go forward in life or, or out of loyalty and whatnot. But it's often the wrong call that the truth is that you're just fine on the inside. You know, it's out there that's troubled. So anyway, having the courage to, uh, so the how of it to your question, I guess for me it was, it was a matter partly of stubbornness. You know, I just didn't want to be pushed around. Uh, it was kind of like, well, you can have my school, you can have my living room, you can have my body, but I'm not going to give you my mind as well. So deep in the, you know, kind of the inner sanctum, sanctorum, you know, uh, of my own mind, the inner keep, uh, as it were, of the castle, I just, mm, no, I was just going to hold on to my sense of what was true. And then I think another part of it was that there was fundamentally in me, and this is something I think is important to cultivate in people, a fundamental, a deep stance of being on my own side, not being against others, but treating myself like I actually mattered, taking my life seriously. You know, I... I Maybe this is part of it, a sense of the precious opportunity. Uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, they talk about, for example, the incredible opportunity of a human life. Or, you know, Mary Oliver, the poet, has this line, what will you do with your one wild and precious life? And that's very deeply true. So I had a sense of that, you know, a caretaking stance, self-compassion, kindness, um, strength on my own behalf, all of which, by the way, neurologically, are capabilities that can be cultivated, you know, because the brain's like a muscle, for better or worse, you know, whatever you work will get stronger. So if you routinely, you know, rest your mind on feelings of hopelessness or inadequacy or, or anxiety, well, you're going to build up those neural circuits. You're going to stimulate them, so they're going to strengthen. Alternately, if you, you know, cultivate a sense of, uh, you know, strength inside, determination, grit, resilience, uh, bouncing back, you know, if you cultivate kindness and, and warm-heartedness toward yourself and, of course, other people, you'll build up those neural circuits as well. So that was, I would say, very important for me on my own path. So you started to talk a little bit about neuroscience, and I'm excited to jump into Buddha's brain and more about that, but I also want to make sure we circle back around to some of the truths and insights that you had um, in reflection upon your young adulthood and if there was anything yeah. more you wanted to share there. Mm. Thanks a lot. You're a good interviewer. You're tracking this conversation really well. <laughs> well, a couple things. Um, so one thing that struck me about looking back on my, my late teens and 20s um, 
was how many fateful choices I made without realizing it. In other words, little decisions that seemed so casual, like, eh, I don't want to take that particular class in college, and that means I need to change my major, so I'll just do that. Or, oh, let's just go have sex with that person. Uh-oh, you know, lots of consequences. <laughs> and uh, Or alternately, nah, you know, I'm, I, I don't need to do that conventional kind of training. I'm really a smart guy. I could just, you know, this is, this is the new frontier, you know, the new age, blah, blah, the counterculture. Yeah, who needs credentialing? Right, uh, and little or alternately, eh, I'm not really that good at that. What's the point? Why should I try to develop it? Anyway, we make these little choices, and then you look back three, four years later, and you're like a, you're five years down a different trail. And sometimes you can recover from those choices, but the recovery is costly. Like for example, uh, in I could have I, I really flourished at UCLA, and I would have had. I think, many opportunities afterward. But I blew them. I didn't uh, take them seriously. I didn't have a mentor. I didn't have someone who sat me down and said, hey, Rick, you know, honestly, uh, you really nailed it at UCLA. All kinds of doors are open. You can walk through them. I had no vision. I had no sense of that opportunity, that possibility. And so I then drifted late through my 20s. And then uh, I learned some a lot of life lessons, which I'm now gradually capitalizing on. But in terms of formal development, um, man, no, uh, I didn't. So then I had to do that in my 30s, really, in my 40s. And so I lost probably five or six years. Plus, those are kind of critical years because um, you can get a lot of stuff going in your 20s that's a lot harder to get going in your 30s and 40s. So that incremental cost of getting that stuff going, like grad school or training or um, making a family or stuff like that, uh, the cost, the incremental cost of doing it in your 30s or 40s you know, is a drain on the system, right? Uh, and that the energy that you're pouring into paying that price, that cost, could have been allocated if you'd done it in your 20s uh, fully into fertilizing the ground and growing good, you know, fruits and uh, flowers there. So that's number one. You know, really be conscious of these seemingly casual little choices, number one. Number two, take the long view. And I'm going to talk more about career. Uh, if you think about it, the work we do is going to, for most people, be spread out over roughly a 50-year period. You know, people are getting, they're working later in life, especially in more kind of interesting and, you know, exotic, neat kind of careers. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're not digging ditches, in other words, in their 60s and 70s, but they're flourishing. They're teaching, they're writing books, they're starting websites, they're building companies, they're on boards. They're having a good time. Um, and so in that 50-year stretch, the costs of uh, building up a strong platform for your own life are amortized. They're spread out over a 50-year period, while the benefits accumulate exponentially over that same period. So for me, the takeaway point from that added to the notion of being on your own side, taking your own dreams seriously, being a strong uh, advocate and an ally to yourself, to me, the practical implementation, the takeaway from this point is invest in yourself in your 20s, you know, or your, or your teens. Um, suck it up, you know, take that extra course or suck it up, uh, do that uh, apprenticeship, you know, that you really want to do. Or, or take a big breath, sleep on a floor, you know, eat brown rice for a year and go to grad school. Um, you know, 
do it. Do what you need to do. Um, you know, do those hard years, if you will. But they'll be quickly behind you. They'll give you lots of stories. You'll meet lots of good people. And the costs of them uh, will be spread out, you know, over that 50 years. But the benefits of those, you know, those extra few years of really investing in your own training, your own credentialing, the development of your own capabilities one way or another, you know, you'll reap the rewards for the rest of your life. So that's my second big takeaway. And then my last one, if you're thinking about career, um, and this applies really broadly, I'm using the word career very loosely, you know, so our, our kind of the productive aspect of our life, uh, very broadly defined. Um, I think of three circles, you know, what you love, what you're talented at, and what you're committed to. And if you think of those circles lying on top of each other and the point of intersection of, you know, the, the territory where it's what we love uh, doing, we, get, we like doing it a lot, and it's what we're talented at, talented at, where we're naturally really strong. And then third, where our values are, you know, the whales we want to save or the children we want to help or the trees we want to plant or the planet we want to stop from getting warmer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. At the intersection of those, loves, talents, and commitments, or values, if you will. Man, that's the sweet spot. And then it's just details. If you're working at the center of those three circles, then it's just about, you know, do I want to live East Coast or West Coast, or U.S. <laughs> or elsewhere, or, you know, what's going to make me the most money, or, you know, where are the, you know, cooler people. But the essence of it is going to be fine for you. All right, that's my shtick. Ah, man, I love it. I love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm just imagining that I'm here sitting at a uh, – a table in a coffee shop across from you, just soaking it all in. And uh, it's incredible. Absolutely. So um, I would love to go into a little bit about Buddha's brain, the uh, practical neuroscience of happiness, love, and wisdom. And what's particularly so interesting to me is the fact that much of this work is not just based on um, psychology or self-help, but it's actually neuroscience. So the, the, the description for the book starts by saying, Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and the other great teachers were born with brains, but essentially built essentially like anyone else's. And then they used their minds to change their brains in ways that changed history. So for yeah. people who aren't familiar with, um, with your work or with your book, can you give us uh, just a kind of overall idea of what the book is about and um, even maybe some of the big takeaways that we could use to implement in our lives? Yeah. So right now, um, you're, you know, people are listening to this. Um, you know, you Jacob are, and you the, the listeners. So it, it, what helps is to sort of bring this down into your own experience, um, because otherwise it can get sort of heady, literally and figuratively. Anyway, uh, you know, so the brain is this organ. It weighs about three pounds, or you know, one and a half kilos. Uh, it's about the volume of five cups, uh, or on the order of about thirteen hundred cubic centimeters, and. Uh, it contains about 1.1 trillion cells. So right now inside your skull are over a trillion cells. And about 10% of them are neurons, 100 billion little neurons. They're like on-off switches, little transistors, as it were, uh, sitting inside your skull. A typical neuron is connected to about 5,000 other neurons at junctions called synapses. That gives you about 500 trillion little synapses, little nodes, in a vast network inside your own head. If you imagine how complex the Internet is globally, just think about the Internet for a moment. 
all of the nodes, all the different com computers or devices, you know, smartphones, what have you, plugged into the Internet. Think about all the traffic moving through the global Internet as we speak. Um, I got to give a talk at Google one time, and they showed me this amazing visual uh, in real time, uh, the globe, of the, just simply the number of searches coming into, globe, coming into Google from different parts of the globe, uh, shown as essentially like a bar or a tower rising off the surface of the planet, uh, rising and falling in real time as bars of light, as it were. So it was really quite incredible as a visual graphic of the, of the searching process. Uh, through Google at least, uh, worldwide. And uh, so it gives you a feeling of what's actually happening in the Internet. Well, guess what? The three pounds of tofu-like tissue inside your own personal coconut is more complex than that. It's extraordinary. You know, literally, as I've been just kind of talking here, over a quadrillion bits of information have moved inside your own skull. Whoa. The organ that we're talking about is trying to figure out the organ we're talking about. Right? So... If you, you know, this organ, which looks kind of gross, like kind of looks like, you know, rotten cauliflower, all wrinkly and gushy, um, it's the most important organ in the body, and it's literally the most complex physical object currently known to science. More complex than the American economy, the, you know, an exploding supernova, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, and so this organ is the learning organ of your body. It's the master regulator of the whole body. So what happens in it affects your health, your mood, um, your sense of vitality and energy. It also um, is continually changing its structure. That's what learning means. You know, if you remember what you had for breakfast or what you did, you know, over the summer, well, that meant something had to change inside your brain, let alone if you pull up the knowledge of what is two plus two. You know, or, you know, who's uh, currently president of the United States, whatever. Uh, something has to change in your brain. So the brain, brain is constantly changing its structure, for better or worse. The only question is, is it good or bad change? And also, who's doing the changing? You know, the forces pounding on us from the outside, stress, demand, authority figures, parents, teachers, bosses, agitated ex-lovers, you know, uh, or also what's pounding on us right now, you know, like the legacy of our own life, uh, you know, old, old wounds and losses from childhood or young adulthood, heartbreak, uh, rejection, uh, feelings of insecurity, anxiety, uh, old, you know, trauma, things like that. Is that what's changing the structure of your brain? Or alternately, are you yourself guiding it to a better place? and tap into power of what's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity, the idea that our experiences, the, our, our conscious thoughts and feelings, hopes and dreams, joys and sorrows, are continually changing the structure of our own brain. Uh, are you going to use that capability of the brain, its nature, to change itself based on what you experience to guide gradually your brain to a better place? And there's, at this point, an enormous amount of research that's come out. You know, a sidebar, uh, you know, like back when I was in the human potential movement and so forth, the psychologists uh, were way ahead of the scientists. In other words, the, the people who were figuring out forms of mental training didn't really know what was going on deep in the physical structure of the brain uh, that enabled those mental trainings and, and why those mental trainings worked. But now the scientists are ahead of the psychologists. The scientists are figuring out stuff that's just really mind-blowing, actually. So at this point, there's an enormous amount of research that shows that uh, what we think and feel and so forth 
changes the structure of the brain. For example, you're in London right now. Uh, studies have shown that taxi cab drivers in London who have to memorize the spaghetti snarl of streets there, which really works the uh, visual spatial uh, processing systems of the brain, a particular region called the hippocampus is centrally involved in that. Well, taxi cab drivers in London at the end of their training, having really worked that muscle, have a bigger hippocampus than they had when they started out their training. In other words, uh, literally layers of cortical tissue have been built uh, because people worked that muscle, as it were. Similarly, people who routinely meditate have thicker brains in parts that are involved in that uh, function of self-awareness, tuning into the body, and the executive control of attention. Uh, people who uh, routinely do relaxation practices have improved expression of genes inside neurons that control the stress response, thereby making them more resilient. The genes themselves don't change based on mental activity of relaxation practices of various kinds, but the expression of those genes, the epigenetics, the unpacking of them so they can do their work and, uh, and uh, change things, um, that is changed due to mental activity. So at this point, oh gosh, uh, I read a recent literature review on uh, mechanisms of experience-dependent neuroplasticity, and there are literally like several dozen detailed little ways in which uh, the flows of information moving through the nervous system, which is what I mean by the word mind, it's what neuroscientists mean by the word mind, broadly defined, lowercase m, without reference to anything transcendental, the flows of information moving through the nervous system, especially those in the uh, field of focused attention, uh, are continually sculpting neural structure. The only question is, um, you know, are we guiding this process ourselves to a better place? So what my work's about, and that of other people, and what my books are about and so on, is how to do it practically. In other words, how to um, use a kind of bare bones, reasonably plausible uh, manual uh, for the brain, kind of like the what's that, you know, like the operating instructions for the brain, by knowing what those operating instructions are and by having tools that you can use to fiddle with things and make them better, well, you can take charge of this structure building process yourself and use your mind to change your brain, to change your mind for the better and change your life better uh, as a result. Yeah, that's incredible. That's that's absolutely incredible. So if young adults were, you know, if we're interested in figuring out what some of those tools and practices are, which we can cultivate in order to guide our brains to uh, a better place, where would you suggest that we start? Yeah. Well, first off, the fact that, uh, you know, the, the younger you are, the easier it is, number one, because the brain's more plastic, it's more malleable, typically, the younger we are. Although, uh, again, lots of studies show that people are building structure in their brains throughout the whole lifespan. Uh, and the second good reason to do it when you're young is, hey, you'll reap the rewards and they'll grow exponentially over a much longer time period. So uh, it's kind of like saving money. You know, if you put it in the bank when you're 25 and let compound interest run for 50 years, you're going to have a bundle when you're 75. But if you put it in the bank when you're 70 and then pull it out when you're 75, it won't have had much chance to appreciate. So number one, motivation. Number two, do not underestimate the power of the dark side of the force. In other words, the brain has an evolved negativity bias. The good news is that when we're, when we're chill, 
when we feel like our basic needs are met. You know, in effect, the brain has three layers in it or levels in it that correspond to three basic stages of evolution, the reptilian, mammalian, and primate-slash-human layers of the brain. In other words, the brainstem, the subcortical regions, and the cortex. And that's a very simplified model, but it's a useful fiction. Okay. Each one of those systems has a primary focus. Uh, the, the reptilian brainstem focuses on avoiding harms. The uh, you know rule one in the wild is eat lunch today, don't be lunch today. First and foremost, you're going to live to see the sunrise. <laughs> That's what the inner iguana focuses on. So then you got the subcortical regions, the you know the, the center, the heart of the limbic system, uh, hippocampus, hypothalamus, amygdala, basal ganglia, etc. They're very focused on approaching rewards, on getting those carrots. And then last, we have the cortex, which is very focused on attaching to others. So, so think about three fundamental needs, three fundamental motivational or self-regulatory systems, avoiding, approaching, and attaching, okay? Uh, or as I kind of think about it, lizard, rat, monkey, you know? So uh, the, brain, the brain's like a little zoo. All right. Well, good news. <laughs> If we feel like those basic, our basic needs are met in terms of avoiding, approaching, and attaching, the brain defaults to its homeostatic, sustainable, responsive mode in which the body refuels and repairs itself, and the mind, in terms of those three fundamental systems, uh, is settled in a place of basic peacefulness, happiness, and love in terms of avoiding, approaching, and attaching peacefulness, happiness, and love. That's our home base. It's not enlightenment, but it's a good place. That's the good news. That's who we are when we just kind of settle. All right. The bad news is that Mother Nature also endowed us with this other setting in the brain. It's reactive setting, so that if we feel at all challenged uh, in terms of these three basic needs, avoiding, approaching, and attaching, the brain kicks into its fight-or-flight uh, stress response uh, for immediate survival purposes, resources are burned much more quickly than they are taken in. Uh, Long-term projects like strengthening the immune system or digesting food are shelved for the momentary survival. And the mind, in terms of avoiding, it, approaching, and attaching, is colored in three broad umbrella terms by a state of hatred, greed, and heartache. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, in terms of avoiding, we have fear and, and anger. In terms of um, approaching, we have feelings of frustration, disappointment, and loss. And then in terms of attaching, uh, you know, when we're in this reactive mode, we have feelings of loneliness, inadequacy, abandonment, shame, um, unlove. All right, not a good place. And when we're in that state, we tend to feel like crap ourselves, and we tend to screw up the world. <laughs> because if you look outside, you know, you can see that this choice, this continual rhythm between the responsive mode of the brain and the reactive mode of the brain happens at the level of just what you're thinking about as you, you know, get your morning coffee and get ready to do whatever you're going to do today. You can see it happening in, in interactions. You know, uh, people go reactive with each other, and then you can also see the ripples widening, widening out because if, if I'm going reactive on you, it's going to tend to trigger you to go into rea go reactive on me, and then we have this runaway vicious cycle. And then you can see it rippling further out, obviously, politically, at the level of um, organizations, uh, you know, nations, and the wider world. So if you want to change the world for the better in this very critical 21st century, one way to operationalize that is to get a critical mass of Stone Age brains 
worldwide uh, in the responsive mode most of the time because when brains are in their reactive mode, people uh, see others as threats, they get very driven around frustration and, and greed, uh, and they really tend to strengthen their, uh, the tendency to clutch tighter to quote-unquote us and uh, dehumanize fear and aggress upon quote-unquote them. So that's kind of a larger context here, you know. And so, uh, you know, in terms of what I would say to a, anyone, including a certainly young adult, is be very thoughtful about the reactive mode of your brain. Since, to quote the famous saying in neuroscience, neurons that fire together wire together, every minute you're clocking in the reactive mode, face it, it's strengthening its neural substrates. You're wiring those neurons together every time you're pissed off or beating yourself up or getting all, you know, doing trolls. I'm amazed at what people will write on the Internet, you know, that they would <laughs> never say face-to-face even to their worst enemy. Um, you know, it's astonishing, the negativity there. You know, hey, if you want to do it, do it. But guess what? You know, to use a phrase from the Buddha, people who get, you know, getting angry at others, dumping your anger on others is like throwing hot coals with bare hands. Both people get burned. I'm not speaking against, you know, fierceness and strength and, you know, social justice and sticking up for yourself and all the rest of that. Uh, anyone who knows me personally would say I'm quite prepared to be assertive if I feel the need. But uh, we don't need to do it by tipping into the reactive mode of the brain, which just frankly weakens our own position and, you know, undignifies us and makes us sputter and creates a lot of blowback from other people and creates a lot of needless harm. So that's one point. Watch out for the, you know, the reactive mode of your own brain. And authentically, as soon as you can, try to find a soft landing into the responsive mode. If you think about it, in evolution, uh, we're designed to go into bursts of reactive mode stress that are usually resolved quickly, one way or another. You know what I mean? The zebra gets away from the lion quickly, or it doesn't at all. You know what I mean? But modern life, unfortunately, and then in the ancient template, is to have a long recovery period between these bursts, these waves, if you will. It's kind of like a quick wave of stress and followed by a long period of calm. That's the biological template. That's the natural rhythm. But we violate that. Yes, we may not be running in screaming terror from uh, lions these days, although, alas, a lot of people worldwide still live in terrible conditions, uh, including close at home. That said, uh, what most of us do experience, though, is a lot of mild to moderate uh, waves of reactive mode activation, you know, stress, if you will, with no opportunity for recovery. You know, it's just chronic stress, chronic mild to moderate, uh, low-grade background stress, but no opportunity to recover, and that's not good for us. So that's number one. Beware the pernicious accumulating effects of flipping into the reactive mode of the brain. Second takeaway is to appreciate how the brain is like Velcro for the negative, but Teflon for the positive. The brain is really good at learning from bad experiences. Once burned, twice shy. You know, those bad experiences go wham right into emotional memory systems. You may forget the episode, but your your body will not forget the feeling. On the other hand, unless it's really novel, a million-dollar moment, the brain is really bad at learning from good experiences, even though good experiences are the primary way to gradually build up inner resources, you know, to fill up our cupboard to get good supplies in our backpack for the long and often hard road of life. Uh, it's very unfortunate. So 
you know, most positive experiences flow right through the brain like water through a sieve because we don't stay with them. We don't savor them for the 10, 20 seconds. That's kind of like a threshold, critical mass that it takes for those um, positive experiences to transfer from short-term memory buffers to long-term storage. In other words, to get encoded into neural structure as learning. That's the nature of learning. Negative experiences get caught every time, but positive ones tend to flow through the mind like water through a sieve. So what you can do, I write about this a lot, and it's my next book, it's also in Buddha's Brain, and my other book, Just One Thing, um, take in the good. In other words, half a dozen times a day, when you're having an ordinary positive experience, either because you're just already having it and you notice it, or you do a little you know, reasonable thing with your mind to cue it up, you know, get that good song playing on your inner iPod, if you will. Um, you cue it up, uh, then stay with it privately, 10, 20 seconds in a row, and sense and intend that it's sinking in. Bit by bit, you'll be building up really positive neural structure for yourself. So I'd say that. That's my second big suggestion. Take in the good. You know, continually build up, you know, uh, good stuff inside yourself. Okay? Third and last suggestion on my little riff here, if it's okay, Jacob. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Cultivate steadiness of mind. You know, about 100 years ago, the godfather of American psychology, William James, had this great line. He said, the education of attention would be the education par excellence. Attention is like a combination spotlight and vacuum cleaner. And you might be hearing my cat in the background who wants some attention, but he's, I'm not going <laughs> to give it to him right now. Anyway, except from petting him here. Um, yes, neurons that fire together wire together. They do so throughout the nervous system. But they do so like on speed for what's happening inside the, the, under the spotlight of focused attention. So attention is like this spotlight and vacuum cleaner. You know, it illuminates what it rests upon, but then sucks it into the brain. Problem is, most people don't have very good control of that spotlight. For one, we didn't evolve to have really good steadiness of mind to lock onto one thing because, you know, animals that did got eaten. They, the ones that survived were distractible. They were constantly scanning their environment for threats and opportunities. Second, uh, you've got natural variation. Some people are more uh, distractible uh, than others. Uh, and then also we have culture, jeepers. This is a very ADD culture. We're just bombarded constantly by stimuli. Um, that, uh, and we get habituated to it. We're, we're used to it. So anything less than that incredibly rich uh, incoming fire hose of stimuli doesn't feel stimulating enough. And so then we, you know, look for ways to kind of turn up the volume on that fire hose. Well, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, we're not all going to live in a cave. I'm cool. I, you know, I, I'm fine with having a lot of stuff going on at once. But, man, you've got to be able to train attention so you can drop it on what's useful and keep it there and, uh, or alternately pull it away from what's not, not useful. And that's where mindfulness trainings come in of one kind or another. You know, find ones you like, whatever that may be. You know, adapt them to your own needs. Uh, if it's just not your thing to kind of sit quietly for 10 minutes following your breath, just walk. Walk back and forth and just notice the feeling in walking and let thoughts wash through your mind. Don't try to control your thoughts. Just let them come and go. But disengage from them. Imagine that the thoughts uh, and feelings and desires and images and whatever that are moving through your mind are kind of like clouds passing through the sky, but awareness is like the sky itself. It's vast and can hold anything. Be the sky. You know, don't, 
jump on to any particular cloud. And, you know, do that for a minute or 10 minutes or half an hour if you want. Uh, or, uh, you know, really try to be in your body while you walk the dog or just kind of sit quietly and have a cup of tea. Uh, you know, there are many ways to train uh, steadiness of mind. Um, a good one, of course, is to stay on the breath, partly because it's boring. Uh, it, you know, no one has ADD in, when they're playing video games, uh, but when you're in a situation, you know, where the stimulus is pretty minimal, that's when you got to build that muscle of attention. So it's, uh, it's better. It's more of a challenge, and so it's better training. But find your own way. So those are my three suggestions. One, watch out for stress and upset. The same systems that evolved to get our ancestors away from charging lions are locked and loaded today when someone frowns at us, you know, across the table in a coffee shop, or we listen to someone whose politics we don't like, or we feel irritated or frazzled, or we got too much to do, or, you know, too, much, too many emails or texts, whatever, to deal with right now. Um, so watch out for that reactive mode of your brain. Uh, yeah, it's necessary sometimes in the short term, but long term, it'll kill you, literally. Uh, second, really cultivate um, positive experiences. Help them sink in. Uh, don't get attached to them. You're not clinging to them. You're actually letting them sink in, so gradually uh, you undo clinging because there's nothing outside you anymore that you need to cling to because you feel so rich and full and fed inside. That's my second suggestion. And then, you know, my third suggestion is get control of that spotlight. Your attention is your fundamental property. And we live in an era where the best minds of our generation are devising ever more clever ways to get control of your personal spotlight and pull it onto what, what they want you to pay attention to rather than what would be good for you to gradually suck into your own brain. Yeah, so let's talk really practically, right? So young people listening to this chat, they're, they're taking it in and it's, it's, um, they're listening to it, beautiful to hear, it's fascinating, stimulating for the mind. And at the end of the day, at the end of the chat, I want to leave them with something that they can implement, a habit, a ritual, an action that they can take. And um, meditation has been something for me that I've committed to and kind of um, integrated into my optimal living and something that I, I just do on a daily basis now, non-negotiably, to, to train my mind, to, to take back that attention and be able to put it really where I want. It's become, you know, it's one of the most valuable assets that I think I, I have. And um, so I'd love, to, I'd love to talk a little bit about meditation, particularly in the context of, you know, the, for the person who, who hasn't really been exposed to much about meditation and maybe what some of the benefits are and really how they could start in a meditation practice if they, if they just don't have much experience with it. Yeah. Um, well, let me, if I could, since we're wrapping up here, uh, get to that uh, quickly. But first, I, I do want to bring it down to earth, those three specific things I suggested. So, cause, and the third one does link to meditation. So first off, if you're getting, uh, if you find yourself getting sucked into the reactive mode, as we all do, you know, you're getting upset about something, you're irritated, you're anxious, you're, you're speeding up, you're, you're getting stressed, um, calm your body. Take a few long exhalations. <clears throat> That's the body's natural way of calming down through exhaling. Uh, it does various things in the nervous system with the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system. Several long exhalations. Second, bring to mind the feeling of someone who loves you. That's the other major way to uh, pull out of a, uh, a negative reactive mode burst. And then last, um, something of physical pleasure, a little thing. You know, have a 
eat a chocolate chip, you know, whatever. You don't need to binge with whatnot. But, you know, do something pleasurable. Run wa- warm water over your hands. Uh, use the bathroom. Uh, look outside and find something beautiful. A moment of physical pleasure is also a great way. Uh, it's Mother Nature's way to take us out of these reactive bursts, number one. Number two, suggestion I made, taking in the good. Honestly, you know, hold yourself to it. Half a dozen times a day, you're having a good moment. Pause inside. Stay with it for 10, 20 seconds. That itself is a kind of attention practice, so you'll get a double benefit there, and let it sink in. You can even do this formally, maybe just before bed or at every meal. Take a few moments to let something good really sink into you. Okay. Third, on the matter of steadiness of mind, training attention, you're getting control of the spotlight, let's say through meditation. Okay. Uh, meditation gets defined differently. The first distinction is whether you do it uh, with a sense of relationship to something transcendental or not. If you're doing it in a sense of something uh, with a relationship to the transcendental, whether you call it God or the ground or spirit or the nameless, uh, Buddha nature, whatever, uh, or by no name at all, uh, that's more of a that's a that's a prayerful kind of meditation, and it's an absolutely important, uh, significant category of meditation. On the other hand, many people will meditate without reference to anything transcendental, whether they believe in anything transcendental or not. It's a simple, it's, they think they conceive of it and they, they per, participate with it as a mental activity uh, in its own right, which is perfectly fine. And so that's now how I will speak about it. There are many ways to meditate. They, the, the basic essence of it is sustaining a sense of presence. In other words, you're here. So if you think about it, we naturally, typically, have multiple moments in a day when we just are here. You know, we're getting on the bus, we sit down, boom, we're here, we've arrived, plop. Then our mind goes off, you know, five seconds later, but for those five seconds at least, we were here. Or we're getting a little frazzled, we sigh, that's a long exhalation, you know, uh, we're calming the body. For the duration of the sigh, we're here. So trust your natural capacity to be here, to be present here and now with yourself. You're not trying to change anything. You're not fixing anything. (sighs) You're here. Then the trick is to extend those moments. Each one of those moments of being here is like a little pearl, and you're just trying to string them together in a longer chain with you know, more and more pearl, more and more continuity of pearl after pearl after pearl after pearl, you know, breath after breath after breath after breath, moment after moment after moment. And then when there is a break, when your mind wanders, as it naturally does, you shorten the duration over time of your mind going away. That's the essence of meditation. And then the rest of it is just details. Sometimes people, uh, one of the details has to do with what you uh, use as a kind of anchor for attention. You know, it's interesting that for the kite to soar, you've got to hold the string. Because if you let go of the string, the kite will fall to the ground. So in a sense, for your mind to soar uh, in a context of meditation, you typically need an object of attention. Otherwise, your mind will start wandering. And that's what anchors the kite, as it were, so it could fly high. So, uh, you know, a lot of people will use a sensation in the body, such as the breath, uh, others might use a phrase, uh, perhaps a phrase like, may all beings be happy, or a simple word like peace, or um, if you're doing this more as a prayer, you could invoke um, you know, something like Om to go out to the universe, or a sense maybe of 
you know, Hail Mother, Hail Mary, Mother of Grace, or whatever. I, I never learned that prayer properly, but I was not raised Catholic. <laughs> but anyway, but whatever works for you. Okay, or an image, you know, or simply uh, maybe a sense of being in a, a place um, that feels really great to you, maybe in nature, maybe in a temple, maybe sitting in your, you know, your grandmother's uh, rocking chair when you were a kid, whatever works for you. And then try to stay with it. Uh, you know, the longer you do, the better. Yeah, the more neurons you get firing together, the more they're wired together. On the other hand, in the real world, uh, sometimes you can just, you only got a couple minutes. But that couple minutes makes all the difference in the world. You know, the Tibetans have a nice saying. If you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. And we really take mm-hmm. care of the minutes when we do some kind of practice. So uh, last mm-hmm. little details. Sometimes people get into a whole thing about posture or location. For me, that's just a means to an end. Um, it helps to remain. do what you can do to stay alert. Uh, you can meditate lying down, uh, but, you know, and I do sometimes. Uh, uh, there's a certain kind of meditation you can get into. On the other hand, it's, uh, it's harder to uh, sustain a focused attention when you're lying down. A lot of people will be sitting up. Maybe walk if you want. Uh, eyes open or closed, whatever works for you. Uh, time of day, some people like to do it first thing in the morning. That's generally my preference, but sometimes I just get to it just before I go to bed. Uh, or both even. Um, yeah, but if you, the larger point, I would say, uh, to quote Father Thomas Keating, uh, who's got this phenomenal uh, practice called centering prayer uh, that's in a more theistic frame, uh, a real, more of a transcendental frame, and still, and a great practice. Anyway, he, he, I heard him speak once, and he had a line. He said, uh, a life uh, without a con- contemplative perspective a life without a contemplative perspective is a sure prescription for disaster. You know, and so I just think that, you know, when we give ourselves these little moments, we get the double benefit, the bonus effect of both cultivating positive qualities of mind and heart uh, by training and steadiness of mind and, and coming home and having a growing sense of center and a, and a growing sense of what it's like to be in a place of clarity and, and peace, happiness, and love. Because you go to the responsive mode, by the way, when you meditate, uh, which builds up its neural substrates. You strengthen that muscle, as it were, in the brain. But the bonus is that to do this, you got to be on your own side. you got to treat yourself like you matter. So you're uh, embodying that. You're enacting this quality of really being for yourself. And that is gradually sinking into your brain as well. Rick, I'm just beyond excited that we got the opportunity to connect and have this conversation and to help spread your wisdom into the lives of just people who it's so relevant for. And uh, super grateful for you for taking the time out and just opening up and engaging. And um, I'd love to just leave people with uh, a, a path they could follow if they wanted to continue to engage with your work. So what would be a a good place for them to go from here if they wanted to find out more about you and what you do and just engage in your wisdom? Oh, thanks a lot, man. Well, uh, my website's chock full of free resources. Uh, Almost everything I do is freely offered, um, like this interview. And uh, so my website's rickhanson, S-O-N.net. Also, anyone can Google me, Buddha's Brain. That's a phrase that's easy to remember, Buddha's Brain. And you'll find me quickly. Um, the book is uh, is ten bucks on Amazon. You know, you can also find it uh, at your local bookseller, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we did a really neat Buddhist brain app. It's very basic. It's very stripped down. Not a lot of gizmos. No fancy screens. Just 
hardcore, cut to the chase, the methods in that book, the practices, the practical stuff you can actually do on the bus, in the middle of a fight, you know, when you're feeling mopey or just want to get more centered, whatever. You know, that's in that Buddha's Brain app, uh, which uh, only runs on uh, Apple platforms, unfortunately, but uh, it's still a pretty good product. Um, so there's that. Uh, yeah, I, I do these. Uh, people might be interested in this Just One Thing newsletter I do. Uh, at this point, approaching 65,000 people are going to be subscribing to it. That's pretty neat. Um, it's a practice newsletter. It offers a simple practice you can do. Uh, the one going out this week is Find Refuge. Um, the one last week was, um, uh, you know, Lean Into Good on First Waking. You know, what do you do the first few seconds or minutes after you wake up? Uh, you know, other practices are things like uh, get on your own side or, you know, see the being behind the eyes or admit fault and move on. You know, just real practical stuff. So that's the just one thing newsletter, and you can always unsubscribe. I'll never give your email address to anybody ever, and I'm a deep respecter of privacy and autonomy. Um, so, okay, those are good ways for people to find out more. Okay, right on. Again, thank you so much, Rick. Hey, Jacob, it was great talking with you, and um, you're great. I'm a total fan of what you're doing with your, your whole thing. And, um, you know, if I could, last word, uh, the world – you know, is challenged right now. On the other hand, I think that uh, a great number of really important things have gotten a lot better over my lifetime. You know, when I was uh, your age, uh, the Soviet Union had 50,000 nuclear warheads aimed at my uh, country, including uh, at mountains just above my backyard. And so uh, a lot of stuff has changed. You know, women are getting more rights worldwide. It's so far from perfect. Uh, you know, the planet's heating up. That's not good at all. On the other hand, there's a real growth of um, developments like what you're doing worldwide, you know, citizen power, uh, access to resources through the Internet and so forth. So, you know, keep heart. Don't give up. Uh, you know, keep on, and we can make this world a better one. Well, you've left me with chills, and I think that's a great way to leave the conversation. Great. All right, Jacob, thanks, and thanks to everyone listening. I love that interview. So let's take a look at some of my favorite big ideas. The first one, step into responsive mode. Watch out for stress and upset. Our brain is at its worst when we're in reactive mode. What we want to do is we want to get our brain into responsive mode. If you get stuck in reactive mode, calm your body. Take a few long exhalations. That's your body's natural way of calming down. You can also bring your mind to the feeling of someone who loves you. You can also do something of physical pleasure, like eat a chocolate chip, run warm water, use the bathroom, or look at something beautiful. This will bring us out of the bad. Now let's bring us to big idea number two, cultivate positive experiences. Here's the thing, the brain is like Velcro for the negative and Teflon for the positive. What we want to do is cultivate positive experiences and let them sink in. So six times a day, stay with the good feelings for 10 to 20 seconds and that'll build up a positive neurostructure in your brain. This is incredible. Literally, neuroscience is showing us how we can start to cultivate a more positive brain. To repeat that, six times a day, stay with the good feelings for 10 to 20 seconds and that'll build up a positive neurostructure in your brain. And if you want, you can do it formally before bed or even before each meal. Big idea number three get control of your mind. Attention is like a spotlight and a vacuum cleaner. 
It illuminates what it rests on and then sucks that into our brains. But the problem is that so many of us don't have good control of that spotlight. Meditation is a great way to help us get control of our mind and sustain a sense of presence. In meditation, we're not trying to change or fix anything, we're here. The trick is to extend those moments of being here, moment after moment after moment. When your mind wanders, you can bring it back, here. Now for more information on how to start meditating, go to www.sensify.com slash meditation. That's www.sensophy.com slash meditation. Soul Sibling, thank you so much for rocking with us. I appreciate you, and I appreciate that you're using your time and your energy toward making yourself a better person and the world a better place. So if you'd like to keep in touch, I'd love it if you subscribe to the podcast, and I'm excited to deepen our relationship, to get to know each other better over time, and to see how I can help you solve meaningful challenges and create your most fulfilled life. We've got a great community over here, and we run retreats all over the world. We've got people who connect with each other and support each other in living the most fulfilled life. And what I'd suggest for your next step is to grab a copy of The 12 Things Happy People Do Differently. It's a scientific-based approach to happiness, and there's a lot of great wisdom out there, but this in particular is researched back from some of the world's leading positive psychologists in the world, and it's super grounded, super practical, how you could do these 12 things that happy people do differently and rock it. The article's been shared over 100,000 times on Facebook, and there's some magic in there. So in order to grab a copy of that, you can go to thankyoujacob.com. Sounds simple, and it is. Thankyoujacob.com, and uh, grab that immediately, and I will keep in touch through personal emails that I send out a couple times a month and all that goodness. So for now, sending you lots of love. Keep it real. Follow your heart, but bring your head. Peace.